Hi, everyone. Welcome to the CSPI podcast. I'm here with Charles Lehman and Gabe Rossman. Um, a lot of you will be familiar with them. Uh, Charles, can you introduce yourself first? Yeah, uh, my name is Charles Van Lehman. I'm a fellow at the Manhattan Institute and a contributing editor at City Journal um, in Manhattan. I sort of work primarily on diversity of issues surrounding public safety, but I'm also very interested in and have written about the sort of phenomenon of wokeness, new pro- contemporary elite progressive ideology, which is, I think, what we're talking about today. Yeah. And, and Gabe? I'm Gabriel Rossman. I'm a professor of sociology at UCLA, and I study diffusion of innovation, which is basically how ideas and behaviors spread, as well as immoral economic transactions. Great. So I wanted to have you guys on because, you know, wokeness as a political issue is something that I've thought a lot about, and it's something that you guys have thought a lot about as a, as a policy issue. And from the direction of people concerned or at least skeptical or at least neutral towards wokeness. I think people who are pro-wokeness have thought about policy for a long time. Um, But I think the people who've thought about it as a policy question from the other direction, um, it's a very, very small world. Um, I think whether we're talking about academia or whether we're talking about journalism or we're talking about, you know, uh, talk show hosts or whatever, Twitter personalities, there are just very, very few people um, thinking along these terms and thinking about it as a policy issue. So this is one of the reasons, you know, I, I, been talking to you guys and one of the reasons I wanted to have you guys on. Um, and I wrote, of course, a, a, an article that got a lot of attention called Woke Institutions is Just Civil Rights Law. Um, and then City Journal ran a few articles about um, about wokeness as a, as a uh, woke capital as a phenomenon or just wokeness more generally. And you guys both had an article um, each in that piece uh, um, uh, citing my article and you know taking issue with it or building on it. So, uh, so we can start with Gabe. Your article is called Why Woke Organizations All Sound the Same. Can you just uh, sort of give us the, the overview of that and how the sociological research informs your view on this question? Sure. So some of it is based on the uh, sociological literature, specifically on diversity management, although Charles does a better job and more thorough job of uh, reviewing that literature. Um, but mostly... I was looking at the theory that sociologists use to explain uh, business fads in general, which is uh, new institutionalism. And new institutionalism has a couple of premises. One is the idea that legitimacy with the environment is very important to organizations, that having um, other actors within the organization's environment think of this uh, actor, this organization as basically a legitimate organization, an organization that's basically a good one of the good guys who's respectable can be very important. It improves your access to credit. It makes you less likely to find, face hostile regulation. If you get sued, you'll have a better reputation to whether that litigation, there's all sorts of ways that uh, reputation can benefit organizations. And then crucially, it assumes that have, uh, you know, doing the right things, doing the things that everybody accepts as that's just the way it's done, um, help give an organization Legitimacy. So organizations derive legitimacy from what one of the earliest articles in this calls myth and ritual. And, you know, it compares it pretty explicitly to, you know, magic in Stone Age cultures. Now, more specifically than that, um, there's been some arguments about what types of stakeholders organizations are trying to take their cues from. And And we refer to these as isomorphisms, right, the idea of same shape. And the big three are coercive, normative, and mimetic. Uh, Coercive isomorphism is the idea that organizations that can coerce you will 
shape the behavior of the focal organization. The most obvious one is the regulatory state, although your supply chain can be just as important. So one example would be if Fortune 500 companies demand uh, racially coded billable hours from their law firms, then big law firms are going to provide racially coded billable hours. Um, it's a supply chain thing of the customer's always right. And that's a little bit weird and creepy and it has to do with civil rights type stuff. But in theory, it's no different from if McDonald's says that they want uh, 92% lean beef, that every slaughterhouse in America is going to make sure that they ship 92% lean beef, that if the customer sets the standards, then the suppliers will meet those standards. So that's coercive isomorphism. And I think uh, your essay on wokeness is just civil rights law would fit pretty neatly within that coercive isomorphism because you're effectively talking about the regulatory environment uh, and, and the legal environment, which would be aspects of that. But in addition to that, and, you know, when you said like, you know, taking issue or whatever, I think more building upon is a, is a better way to put it. Um, in addition to the legal environment as a coercive thing on the organization, there's also normative and mimetic. Normative is the expectations of skilled professionals. Uh, mm -hmm. Typically, we think of it as you hire some accountant, the accountant comes into your company and they look at your books and they say, that's not how I learned to do it at Harvard Business School. This is all wrong. We've got to redo your books in accordance with this best practices that I learned at Harvard Business School. So you can apply that to this sort of thing where you hire some HR person and the HR person says, uh, well, that's not how we learned it wherever, right? I, I was just at this workshop where we learned that the appropriate way to do HR is to have uh, privilege walks. And, you know, so now we've got to have privilege walks and we've got to have people talking about white supremacy and all this sort of thing at our organization. So the expectations of skilled professionals, in, in particular, uh, legal and HR professionals could be driving a lot of wokeness. But just beyond that, one of the patterns you've seen, if you've observed these things, is that people who it's not necessarily their job description before wokeness, but are nonetheless skilled professionals increasingly have the expectation that major organizations should reflect their woke values on these sorts of things. And so there's been numerous cases in tech where tech workers have effectively threatened to go on strike if the organization, uh, you know, Google or Apple or whatever, Google's probably the worst about this. Yeah, uh, Chappelle, Chappelle Walkout, you had the Pentagon. Yeah, exactly, the Chappelle Google. Walkout at Netflix, that sort of thing, where you have, um, that's not the HR people at Netflix threatening to do that, yeah. or the, you know, the gender sensitivity people at Netflix threatening to do that. That's people who produce shows for Netflix, right? These are people who, it's not in their job description to be uh, part of wokeness, but they, it's an important value that they presumably sincerely hold. Um, and this seems to be a relatively new phenomenon. Um, it's, it wasn't part of the original formulation, but I think it's very clear that employee activism is a key issue here. Um, and one way that it could kind of synthesize with what you were pointing out about civil rights law is that it lets, it lets the woke people within firms, the woke employees within firms hit above their weight. Yeah, that, of course. You know, if, if, if I have a grievance and I say, let's say I go to UCLA and I say, I think it's annoying that they're asking me to declare my pronouns. Like, that's just some old middle-aged white guy with an opinion mm. being cantankerous. Yeah. But if somebody says, oh, I'm genderqueer and my professor won't let me declare my pronouns, yeah. the, the HR office has to think, could this person sue us, right? right. So 
um, there's a sort of asymmetry that even if the, uh, you know, and, and this is where I think you're right about, you know, just civil rights law, but I think it has to, there's basically, there has to be a demand from some constituency. And I think the main constituency is the employees. Um, but what makes the, the woke constituency of the employees hit above their weight would be what you're talking about, civil rights law. And the last issue is mimetic isomorphism, which is the idea of there's an industry standard. There's a best practice. There's let's imitate what the leading companies are doing. And, uh, you know, once a practice becomes well-established enough, it's simply like, well, this is the thing you do. All companies do this. Of course, we're going to do this because all other companies do this, or maybe the market leaders do this, or maybe, you know, where, you know, maybe you have your little mom, pa uh, think tank, but you look around and you see all the other uh, think tanks are making the junior scholars do elephant walks as part of their induction. And so you're going to do an elephant walk as part of your induction because, you know, that's now a best practice in the industry. And mm-hmm. even if you're going to sit, think about it for a minute, you're like, this is completely ridiculous. You yeah. think, well, it's a best practice in the industry. That's a legal standard now. The best practices is a defense against uh, civil rights violations, right? Yeah. So these things all cross pollinate, right? Where um, when you have legal standards for best practices, that's effectively coercive isomorphism latching on to mimetic isomorphism and saying it's not just mimetic isomorphism, it's now the law. Yeah. And so normative, so normative is the, um, is the employees Employee is the norm, and, and, and mimetic is just sort of, you know, we have this thing in, I've seen it in political science. I don't know if it comes from sociology or it comes from philosophy or where it comes from. It's called logic of appropriateness. Have you heard that term before? No, I haven't. Okay, so maybe it's a political science thing. I don't, I don't know, but basically, you, institutions can operate on logic of consequence. So this is like a firm trying to maximize, you know, value or whatever. It could be a bureaucracy trying to whatever save lives or or whatever. And then you have logic of appropriateness, which is just basically we do this thing because we're this kind of institution. So if you look at things like how militaries are organized, how health you know departments are organized across the world, they tend to you know they tend to resemble each other a lot more than you would expect. Like you know, you look at these you know the military and uh, how. It's set up in, in China versus the US and maybe some there's good reasons for it but it, it seems way too close to be just you know this is the way things are done it's just basically people adopt you know if this is a military this is what you have right you have a navy you're divided by navy army uh whatever um so yeah this is and and you know this is it's but it's interesting we go back to when you said the the normative part about the the white man not being able to uh not being able to punch above his weight because of the concerns of civil rights law it's it's very well, it's not just that right i mean in yeah. theory and there, there's oh, some sure. debate about this but in theory yeah. i might have they might have to take me seriously if i were to say look the privilege walk made me like wear the dunce cap because you know i had five points of privilege and only one point of anti-privilege or whatever. Yeah. In theory, they might have to take that seriously because in theory, a lot of these laws are, uh, well, in fact, most of these laws are written facially neutrally. So in theory, I might have a grievance there, but if my grievance is not, this discriminates me because I'm a member of a particular class, but just, right. I find this annoying. Yes. Then that has no grievance. So like, it's not about, so like, let's say that Glenn Lowry were to uh, file a complaint with Brown university saying, mm-hmm. Uh, I'm annoyed at the statement you made at uh, the Floyd thing, which he did. Yeah. That doesn't carry any weight because he's not saying you discriminated against me as uh, a black man. Yeah. He's saying, I just consider this to be uh, unscholarly. 
Yeah. Right. And they say liberals are the real racist, and then it takes on a whole new dimension. Then maybe that will get their attention if they say. Yeah, there could somehow. be ways to frame that, right? So <laughs> if he had framed it not in terms of like this is just unscholarly, it's undignified, it's unprofessional, it's against academic freedom, blah blah blah, which is more or less how I recall his statement. Um, but if he were to say something along the lines of this sets expectations that you know indirectly. Uh, affect the pipeline for minority scholars and create a hostile environment for minority scholars. Like you said, libs are the real racist thing. Then, yeah. you know, in theory, that would have meant that the HR office would have had to pay attention saying, look, Ooh, if we end up firing him, he'll have grounds for wrongful termination or something right. like that. Yeah, exactly. So let's talk about that. Uh, Charles, can you talk about your piece? Yeah. You know, and uh, my piece is in many regards, uh, it's, 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 it's sort of historicization of the concepts that Gabriel just talked about. And, you know, in, in it, I sort of, A, try to tell a historical story related to the distinctive one that you, Richard, have told. And then, B, I sort of try to answer with that historical story a question, which is basically, like, corporations are doing these crazy things, and particularly these sort of counter-interest things uh, because of wokeness. Why is that? So, you know, the, the story that I tell to sort of gloss is, like, the, the CRA, the Civil Rights Act, creates this new large complex bureaucracy with very heavy enforcement, uh, very aggressive standards for what, it, what it, how it wants businesses to comply, uh, but also not a lot of clarity on what actually complying with CRA looks like. And what this does is create this like paradigm in the business world of what I can label compliance, um, where like the norms for race conscious policy are very much or oriented towards how do we go along? How do we avoid pissing off the EEOC? How do we avoid upsetting the Office of Federal Contract Compliance Programs, um, the two major regulators? How do we avoid upsetting the DOJ? How do we avoid complaints? Um, and this is, you know, th this is a great example of the sort of most raw form of course of isomorphism and this is the the standard that predominates through the, 19, the late 1960s the early 1970s is like basically american firms are implementing quotas they are uh creating diversity offices or diversity hiring offices because they're worried about what the federal government will do that's the justification um that's you know sort of the course of isomorphism story uh, on its own, and it says that to, to return to the point, the the, the logical there's there's a to use your language, there's a logical consequences there. It's like why do we do this? Because that is if we don't do this, we will run afoul of the government regulators. This is a key turn in the story. This is drawn from the institutional literature, neo institutionalist literature on this stuff. The key turn in the story comes in 1980 because so like there as sort of today, although today is distinct. There's really a bipartisan consensus in Washington that the post-CRA regime is good, it's cool, quotas are great, we love all that. Americans hate it. Like, universally, in polls, Americans are not on board with this stuff. One of the ways that Ronald Reagan rides to power in 1980 is he says, Americans hate this stuff, I'm not going to do it when I'm president. Um, that doesn't totally happen, but he sort of, like, puts his foot on the gas a little bit. He puts uh, – Clarence Thomas takes over at EEOC – um, the DOJ gets less, DOJ gets less into like going after disparate impact. Uh, there are a couple of other changes that he makes. Um, and if there's sort of a pure logical consequences story, then you would expect businesses to ratchet back their, uh, their level of, their level of compliance. But instead what happens is the businesses go, no, we love diversity. We love race conscious policy. It's the best thing ever. We're going to do more and more and more of it. And they transition to this other, this other logical, rational justification, which um, which I talk about as the business case for diversity, this becomes sort of the norm in the late 80s and early 90s, which is like basically 
in order to compete in the 21st century, in the 20th, late 20th, and early 21st century, diverse economy, we need to diversify and be inclusive and bring everybody in. Um, and then the piece, I sort of like review some of the literature on this, and I go like, I, I, in its very strongest form, diversity is like a minor contributor to the bottom line. Like it doesn't hurt, it doesn't help. It's it's sort of net neutral, but it certainly is not does not give you the sort of return on investment where it's worth the billions of dollars that firms now spend on this stuff and stimulus stuff. And so what I say is like, look, from to go back to the institutionalist logic, I think what has happened here is what is what the new institutionalists would call uh, would call institutionalization, where no longer are firms doing this because it's in because there's a there's a there's a, a concern with a rational end. Rather, what firms are doing is seeking to uh, they're they're doing they're following logic of appearances. They're doing what they're doing because it is what is done, and then justifications are all post hoc. Um, and there's sort of we can talk about the reasons why this persists, even if you sort of ratchet back pressure. But the sort of my key takeaway is like this explains a lot about why this stuff has gotten so extreme. Why it becomes impossible for corporations to say no to any of this stuff because there's no there's no sort of like principle which grounds there's a limiting principle which grounds it um there's there's no reference to anything but itself i.e if we all agree that race conscious policy is good and so more race conscious policy is better and any rational relationship to reality goes out the window um so so that's you know sort of the the, the thrust of the article is like is you know documenting how we have corporate work is to use Gabriel's language has moved from being purely a story about course of isomorphism to being a story about course of isomorphism and mimetic isomorphism and normative isomorphism and all of those pressures and how that explains why we've had this crazy runaway effect over the past 20, 30 years. So I guess like it's interesting to think about how this sort of builds on and how it's sort of a uh, response to, to my article. So I think of a naive reading of my article is basically you know, this is, and this, I don't think this is a correct reading, but you could say this is this sort of the naive pure version is that the government has its uh, uh, boot on the neck of corporate America. Yeah, that, that's the naive version of, of my, of my article. Um, and you're saying, and you're, 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 you know, just, I think you're just uh, for contrast, for contrast sake, taken to its uh, logical extreme is what you're saying is if the government, and this sort of happened in the 1980s with, with Reagan, but not, not totally, if the government just stops doing this stuff, um, what's the what's driving it it's the it's the hr departments it's the it's the the media who who is who is sort of it's just the normative thing uh normative ideas they've uh yeah. they've internalized what's what's keeping it going at that point well and 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 you know i i i don't sort of delve into the different actors that much the sort of core answer is that this set of ideas as being just sort of like good and desirable has been broadly accepted um yeah. so the 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 sort of pressure of institutionalization will keep driving it. I do think that the, the there are a set of actors, an ever-growing set of actors who have self-interest in perpetuating this stuff. Like if you are a diversity professional in the rapidly ascending diversity interest, you want to convince people that diversity is really, really, really important. Um, the same thing goes for administrators who are responsible for this stuff. There's also, I think, you know, this, this cycle, this normative cycle that is under discussed where uh, compliance with corporate culture drives people who are entering the workforce, i.e. college students, to sort of uh, shift left. And that, in turn, creates more left-leaning college students who then enter the workforce and, as Gabriel alludes to, become the activists who push the culture left. So there's a feedback loop that's important there, too. Um, I mean, I think that there are a whole bunch of different actors 
all of whom are like immersed in this essential logic. The logic comes from this accident of history, but now it's everywhere and it sort of keeps pushing itself in. Yeah. But what about the, I mean, the premise, the, the, the idea that Reagan did actually um, scale back? How much was it? Like, do we have numbers? I've, I've been meeting to look this up, but do we have numbers on the number of EEOC filings or, or whatever that, uh, you know, what was the trend during the Reagan administration? So my understanding, so, so the best article on this is uh, Dobbin Sutton's uh, 1998, I believe it was from, uh, yeah, it was from ASQ, Administrative Science Quarterly. Uh-huh. Um, or was it AJS? What's uh, the year? Dave Dobbin uh, 1998. Sutton. Dobbin Sutton, yeah, AJS. So uh, Dobbin Sutton, uh, American Journal of Sociology, 1998. Uh-huh. And, you know, the, this is this article that shows that even after the Reagan, even while the Reagan administration took its foot off the gas, um, you still saw it, it, it basically the friction had been overcome and there was now inertia. Um, and they attribute it to basically HR and legal. Yeah. That at this point, there were internal constituencies within firms that, uh, you know, push for expansion of these kinds of programs. And uh, to the best of my recollection, I don't remember if I read this in Dobbin Sutton or something else, but uh, to the best of my recollection, the Reagan administration's priorities under Clarence Thomas were uh, basically to respond to overt discrimination, but not to yeah. look for um, disparities. Yeah. So, 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 um, yeah. so I can talk less about numbers, but more about history. Um, Thomas, when he's in charge of the EEOC, explicitly says the goal of the EEOC has been these big systematic prosecutions based on, uh, based on uh, sort of grand theories of disparate impact. We're not going to do that. We're going to focus on specific cases. The other big example is again in William Bradford Reynolds, who Reagan appoints to run the Office of Civil Rights at DOJ. And Reynolds comes out and says, we are in favor of colorblindness. We are in favor of, uh, excuse me, we are against quotas. We think that these are bad things. Um, there is sort of a more complicated institutional history of the push. It's like Congress, ha- uh, Congress fights back against Reagan. There's yeah. some trans bureaucracy. The Reagan Department of Labor is actually super woke. That's, yeah. We wouldn't use that language then, but uh, they're, they're importantly uh, progressive in a variety of ways. So it's not, it's not a uniform thing, but like the, I think it matters that the message coming out of the Reagan administration is we're not interested in doing this stuff anymore. And so that signaling is pretty unambiguous, which leads me to believe that, again, again, you would expect at least a marginal shift from businesses away from this stuff. And instead, the signal for businesses is, no, we want more of this stuff. Like this is, you know, Reagan finishes his time in office in 1989. The 1990s is the great, uh, the dawn of... Uh, diversity research the dawn of uh diversity consulting like yeah. none of that stuff goes away but you do have but see like yeah but let's think about I mean, let's think about it because the 1991 you get the uh, civil rights act of 1991 so the legal environment becomes much much more woke um you know yes. to use the term you, you, you get well and, and in particular my understanding is that it took what had been case law and made it statutory law in part because some of the case law was reversed, and then they said, "Let's go back to the old, more woke." Exactly. So there was a sort of there was even a conservative a movement towards a more conservative direction in the courts, and then uh, the nineteen you know bipartisan you know both parties um, you know uh, overwhelmingly both parties. I looked it up the other day. I think like something like six Republican senators voted against it. Um, you know, and I, I, besides that, everyone voted for it. Um, and but you know, if you just want like, how would you know whether l- l- culture was downstream from law? 
and 1980s, right? And it's confounded because the country voted for Reagan in you know 40, 49 states, 48 or 49 states in 1984. So the, the uh, you know, so like yeah, the fact that Reagan was in office uh, tells you something about the culture. But at the same time, you know, maybe you could say this thing, this stuff did had downstream effect. If you look at the 19, 1980s movies, I mean, they're very they're very non woke. I think less woke than probably any other decade since the 1960s. Um, Maybe it was a maybe it was a conservative success story. Bought us ten years of of uh, non woke culture. Is that plausible to either of you? Yeah, I, I don't know. Uh, yeah, it's funny because in some ways I am a sociologist of culture, but I don't really think so much about like can. I mean, this is wasn't it Moynihan who said like conservatives want culture to affect. Uh, the state, but liberals, something like that. Well, there's a, I think the quote is, I don't know if it's more than half of the, the famous quote is that in, I, I actually was in the David Brooks article in the Atlantic, which I just yeah. saw. It's like the, uh, it's like uh, the insight of conservatives is culture matters more than politics. The okay. insight of liberals is that politics can influence the culture. Right. Yeah. So that would be a case of that. If you want to tie Clarence Thomas at the EEOC and the Reagan DOJ to the 1980s movies, right. Which is hard to do, but, I don't yeah. know. I mean, the way that I'm that, thinking right? about it is like, I mean, you had Constantine in 312. Yeah. And you had a few generations of that. And then you have Julian the Apostate and nothing happens. Mm. And then after Julian the Apostate, you know, Christianity just keeps on chugging. Right. I would say two things. The first thing I would say is I think, you know, the, the relationship between mass culture and this stuff is often pretty tenuous. The 1990s are a highly politically incorrect decade, right? Like, uh, uh, Bill Clinton, who's the, uh, who's the woman who, Lewinsky. who Bill Clinton tries to point at DOJ, the first public dispute over critical race theory. Um, oh, Lonnie Guinier. Yes. Uh, Lonnie Guinier. Uh, sorry for, for context. Uh, Bill Clinton I thought you were going to go, I thought you were going to talk about Lewinsky jokes, late night comics, but that's, that's no, I, I thought you were problem. also going to talk about the nanny problems where he had like three, uh, attorney generals. Who all had under the table nannies and Not, neither that. No. Um, no, no. So, so, so the first, the first, the public's first major encounter with critical race theory's concept is when Bill Clinton tries to point at President Lonnie Guinier, uh position at DOJ. I think it's the Office of Civil Rights, and there's mass outcry because people come upon her academic writing and they go, "What is this insanity?" And he's forced to withdraw it. You know, America is a very conservative country in the 1980s and 1990s. Uh, why? You know, you can have a dispute about what that is, um, but I think even, you know, the, the the culture has ebbed and flowed. Um, I think that the 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 mass culture has ebbed and flowed, but I think that sort of the business priorities have continued more or less uh, in one direction directionally since the nineteen sixties. We haven't gotten yeah. they've gotten less woke over I guess, time. Yeah, I guess I'm looking. I'm looking at, yeah, I'm looking at the mass culture because. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's it's sort of a very very downstream, but the uh, the business culture, like, do we like? You're right. It does have a yeah. I think I was going to say, do we know that the 1980s are worse? Yeah, I've seen the charts and one of the things that I think is relevant here is that you know the the, the culture can ebb and flow and be more conservative or more liberal. Whereas, you know, certain norms become entrenched. This is part of the, sort of the core of my argument is like at no point do we ever really challenge the idea. Do, do executives and 
uh, the people who are charged with doing this within the administrative bureaucracy ever challenged the idea that corporations should be spending a lot of time counting uh, who, how many black people they employ, how many white people yeah. they employ, that they should be spending a lot of time not just doing the administrative compliance things, but also subjecting people to diversity seminars, to talking about how to be more inclusive, to talking about the 21st century advantage. One of the one of the anecdotes that I relate in the piece is, so there's this like key moment um, in the late 1980s, just before the end of the Reagan administration, the Reagan Department of Labor puts out this report called Workforce 2000, in which they say, okay, uh, by the year 2000, only 30% of people entering the workforce will be white men. And the lesson that everyone takes away from this is that by the year 2000, the workforce is going to be a majority minority. We have to dramatically shift everything. And because it's I don't think it was even this. 30% entering. I thought it was like 30% of the marginal entrance to account for the growth. Yes, yes. It's it's 30% like, of net entrants are, um, are, are white men. Uh, yeah. Right. The, 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 the statistics get started. My, my point, though, is like, you know, people are corporations simultaneously. America is very conservative in the eighties and nineties, and corporations are obsessed with race. They're obsessed with all the things that they're obsessed with today. I was talking to a friend uh, earlier today. He made the point that there are a lot of continuities between pol- the political correctness disputes of the nineteen nineties and the wokeness disputes of today. But I think you know, in both cases, there were there, there were just this like presumption of corporations should be in the race consciousness game that went totally unchallenged within the boardroom and within the administrative bureaucracies that had sprung up uh, and that were profiting off of its continued existence. Was that true? I mean, I'm trying to remember, I mean, uh, unlike, I, I'm going to pull a cohort uh, privilege on you in that, like, I can remember the 90s. And um, I feel like there the stereotype of political correctness was that it was mostly an academic thing, um, you know, in the nineties. Uh, and you know, like I, I, like a lot of people, I got a copy of like the political correctness, correctness dictionary and stuff like that. And it was, and like half the book was quotes from this one crazy Afrocentrist professor at Cooney, um, named, uh, Leonard Jeffries. Um, but like, it seemed like it was mostly academics, who were being made fun of? It wasn't nearly as much. Um... Yeah. So my, my my claim is not my claim is not that you know boardroom execs were politically correct. They weren't necessarily. My claim is that race consciousness was always on the table in the boardroom. That if you go read our business review from the nineteen nineties, they're talking about uh, sure. how you can manage diversity. That was like the hip trend. There were cases at the time of organizations trying to implement diversity training or workshops or that sort of thing, and it going badly and it backfiring. My understanding, and I'm not like a huge expert on this, is that the Texaco case was in part, it was kind of like the Papa John's thing, where it was like a diversity effort gone wrong that like wildly backfired, where in the course of a diversity exercise, the um, the executive said things that were really racist, uh, trying to participate in the diversity exercise, and then that got taken as straightforwardly racist, and uh they end yeah. up losing a lot of money over it. Yeah, it was yeah, it was a hundred. It was like like a hundred thirty five million dollar settlement. I mean, so yeah. It was, and, and my understanding is like the the smoking gun evidence was that they referred to workers of different races as different colors of jelly beans. But apparently, they'd gotten that metaphor directly from the diversity trainer they met like two days earlier. Right. So basically, I mean, I guess so. so there, there was this race consciousness, and it could backfire. But it wasn't that they the discrimination wasn't that they were you know, uh, trying to, you know, there wasn't against whites. It was still, it was like you, it was too insensitive towards blacks. Right. And so it was, it was sort of like a, um, you know, it was, it, I think the, you know, what the courts were doing. And I think, I think the media plays a big role here is they're sending a message basically 
you have to be very, very careful. Right there, you don't do it with a smile on your face, or you don't do it with the, with a smirk. Right, you you take it to you know you you know who the protected groups are. You you just uh, tread very carefully. And so yeah, the 1990s there was a lot of big cases like this. It seems like yeah, people. I mean, just the just culturally, like if you say you know like the phrase like New York Times, who is white? Like if you mentioned someone, someone was white, like just out of context, it would have been very you know without a, like a really really good reason for it. It was just seen as a very very strange thing. I mean, people just did people just thought completely differently. Um, and then in the 2000s, I, it does, it's not that different. I mean, in the uh, 2000s, I mean, I think the red state, blue state divide, like really the first time people really talk about that is 2004, the 2000 election. Um, you know, you have that Simpsons clip that I showed the other day where the aliens come to Earth and they take, uh, you know, it was still basically all that. That was Clinton and Dole where they, you know, take over their bodies and the, the joke is their drones, they're in, indistinguishable. In 2000s, it was, it was pretty much the same thing. I think 9-11, you get... Red state, blue state. Yangar, um, Yangar's work seems to trace the um, rise of hyper. This is not. I mean, the the rise of hyperpolarization and negative partisanship um, is distinct from the Great Awakening. And yeah. Yangar at uh, Shanto Yangar at Stanford has done the best work on this. And to the best of my recollection, he basically traces it to the late '90s. And he doesn't trace it to a particular event, but. If you had to put an event on it, the Clinton impeachment over the Linsky scandal is as good as anything. That's roughly the time that you start seeing hyper negative partisanship. Yeah. And that roughly predates the that predates the Great Awakening by almost 15 years. Right. Let me um maybe let me maybe offer sort of a, an illustrative example, um, which is so. So if you sort of follow this stuff, there's your listeners may be familiar with the acronym DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion. And if they're really hip to it, they know that what you do now is you talk about DEI, BJ, diversity, equity, inclusion, belonging, and justice. Is this, um, I mean, it's, it's, it's at Berkeley. I don't know. I don't know how far it's gone. Yeah, it'll be everywhere <laughs> before long, I'm sure. Um, yeah, if, if you go Google it, you can. I saw somebody use it on LinkedIn yesterday. Uh, but, you know, the, the, the continuing addition of letters to that acronym uh, begins with just diversity practice in the 1990s, right? It starts with, like, the basic premise of it is important that our country be conscious of the racial composition and that we need to take active steps in order to ensure that we are diverse, that we have diversity. That's essential. And then we say, okay, but it's not actually just that. We also need to care about inclusion because just having people learn isn't enough. And then you add to that equity, which is like not just uh, equality of opportunity, equality of outcome. And then you add to that uh, belonging, which is sort of more cultural. And you add to that the concept of justice, which is social. Um, these are these are accumulated over time. If you go read accounts from diversity professionals, they'll say this is you know the understanding of the field is expanded over time. The way that what I see happening there is like there's a basic premise that was written in 30, 40 years ago, which is like it matters uh, the, the racial composition of your firm matters, and ensuring that your firm falls over a certain racial composition matters, and everything else is propagated outwards from there. In this sort of like because you agree with this, you also have to agree with all of Kennedy's conclusions. Um, and that that you know that that logic has run away on its own over and above whether the public believes that, and certainly whether the guys who are in the White House believe that. Uh, the people, the institutional structure of business, just it, it is written into the DNA of that thing at this point. Yeah, is, is it? I mean, is one is one solution to this? So you do, you know, it's too naive to expect that Reagan comes along or any conservative administration comes along and things change overnight. And maybe corporations, what they are is you know what they are. They're stuck with what they are. Right. Is it the hope could be if someone wants to, and maybe we should shift a little bit towards, you know, prospects for fighting wokeness and, you know, what could work if, if anything. Um, 
it, the idea is you would basically, you'd, you'd write off whatever, the Fortune 500 companies today, but there's massive t- turnover in what the Fortune 500 companies are, right? There, there's, there's turnover in, uh, in uh, well, you know, one thing people used to say about Silicon Valley was that they basically had no HR departments. And they've, been, they've been gone after for that. And you, that there was always sort of a threat of a legal, um, there's a legal aspect to this threat, right? But the idea is you basically, you would change the law and then you would wait for corporate turnover. You would let the market be dynamic and then maybe, in, you know, you'd have to wait uh, 20, 30 years. And then it's a new generation that did not have to think this much about compliance. They have no established HR bureaucracy. Is, is, that, is that perhaps, you know, the best, uh, the best that the anti-wokes can hope for? This seems like the exodus theory of uh, cultural change, right? You have the generation in the wilderness that never saw yeah, it. For her, yeah, for corporations, for institutions, right, exactly. Yeah. I, I don't know. I'm skeptical of that because, like, you kind of had that with tech. You know, I mean, we, we already had this, uh, you know, complete transformation of, uh, industry where you had these old legacy firms that many of which. No, but, but I'm saying you have to change. You have to change a lot. You have to change a lot first because the, the, the because you're just because eventually you're going to run into the same. You're going to run into the same. Yeah, and that's what, that's what happened in tech, right? Tech used to have this kind of like vaguely libertarian culture, uh, you know, and a totally indifferent to like basically kind of old fashioned color blindness, and they don't really care that it turns out that almost everybody's a white or Asian man in their companies. Uh, mentality. And that's completely changed over the last 10 years. Like with the great awakening, uh, you know, tech has, you know, somebody like DeMore used to be typical of tech. Yeah. And now he's, you know, an outlier who has to be purged. No, I understand what you're saying that it, you'd have to have that kind of scale of industrial transformation during a different legal environment. Exactly. you know, that like if I mean, we don't know exactly what's going on, but at some point Google hired all these HR people and things like that. And some of that may just be because you're hiring the good computer programmers. They're all 22 years old and straight out of MIT and have blue hair and five genders. And so they all come into your uh, your organization and they say, it's important to us that we have this. And if you don't do this, we're going to go on strike and kill the DOD uh, Google Cloud contract and do this and that. Um but part of it could be because, you know, Google obviously faces a lot of regulatory threat as a monopolist. And so if any company needs legitimacy, it's going to be, you know, the FANG companies, um, you know, especially ones like Google, where they really do have, ser- you know, you don't even need to look back that far. You don't need to look back to like AT&T being broken up or U.S. Steel being broken up or something. You can just look at the Microsoft Netscape suit. I mean, Google has done probably dozens of things more egregious than giving Internet Explorer away free with Windows. Um, and so it's very important to them to be able to ex- escape regulatory scrutiny. And um, to the extent that, uh, you know, the state prefers this, then they're going to adopt this. And like you're saying, now Google's going to have that forever. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But it's a good question. Like in you know, the You've got to wait for Coinbase to become Google, but Coinbase will face the same pressures. Yeah, so let's imagine that... Reagan had become, you know, God Emperor Lich King Reagan, who, you know, reigned on his throne of skulls for three decades. And that was enough time to, you know, in the 1991 Civil Rights Act never passed. And you had basically a Thomas uh, approach to civil rights enforcement for an entire generation. And during that time, you got Google. It's entirely possible that Google would still have like the kind of Silicon Valley culture that you see described in early Neil Stevenson novels. Yeah.
I mean, I do think, I do think like heterogeneity is important here, right? Like, like we focus, we focus a lot on the big firms, which matters a lot uh, in terms of impact, but the, the, the way that I think about this is like very tactically, which is ultimately the goal should be a, you identify the levers you can actually pull. Like people are, you know, people are critical of wokeness can't control Hollywood. They can't affect the culture, but they can totally control what goes in front of the Supreme court. They can totally control state legislatures. And the B you say, you want to make it more costly to engage in the behaviors that you don't like. And you want to make it less costly to engage in the behaviors that you do like. So like, when you talk about making it more costly to engage in behaviors that you don't like, uh, the Trump administration did exactly one good thing on this issue, right? They, they issued the uh, anti-DEI training EO in the waning days of the administration. Right. It was really successful. It, like, if you, there, there were lots of... Uh, yeah, they were crying on Twitter. Of, they they, they right. it hurt their yeah. pocketbook. Yeah, yeah I, I'm actually not convinced that was a good idea because by doing it... I mean, it's the kind of thing that might have been a good idea if he did it on day one of a two-term administration. Yeah. But by doing it, you know, as a practically a lame duck, um, you know, you're effectively just asserting that um, negative partisanship will... I mean, th- there was this pattern, particularly with Trump, where anytime Trump did something, even if liberals had previously opposed it, they said if Trump is for it, we're against it, right? So yeah. you saw immigration became much more popular. But Trump also set an example for the states now that they're doing it at the state level too. So it has a... And, 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 much like, and much like the Mexico City policy or other uh, executive orders that get reversed and then re-reversed when, when the White House loses power, it reduces the certainty for government trainers. Uh, it makes it more costly to be in that business. And so it makes it more unpleasant in the long run. Yeah. That's the goal. Regulatory <laughs> um, right. uncertainty, it's not a bug, but a feature. It's right. Uh, so, so um, you, Gabriel, and I love to talk about Mark Kleiman, the late Mark Kleiman, the um, political scientist uh, and theorist of, among other things, drug markets. Mark Kleiman liked to say the goal of drug policy is to create inefficient markets for drugs. That, like, when you have a substance that you don't like, you want to make the market as inefficient as possible so yeah. that there will be less of it. Um, and, and regulators can make it very unpleasant. The other thing you do is try to make it much easier. For, so you make it you make it harder for um, people to, you know, to, to run these trainings, you can, uh, try to bring lawsuits. We talked before the podcast about this woke act in Florida, that, like just came out yeah. where having these trainings introduced a hostile work environment, like the plain text of the CRA, which of course has not been enforced for 40 years, right. like, very clearly prohibits lots of things that corporations are now doing. Uh, the right is not good at a lot of things in American culture, but we're actually good at suing and we control a lot of the courts and will for some time. Is the right um, good at suing? I mean, yeah. This is a war key. of attrition who can file the most lawsuits. Do you think the right's going to win that battle? Uh, yes, I think we, I, I, I think the right at present has a better legal infrastructure. Um, I think the right, so, so the, the, you know, the case at which I am essentially optimistic is the Harvard case, which I think will prove, a major I think the federal judge. I mean, the judges. Yes, if you get if you get to the yeah. judiciary, you you punch way above the right punches way above its weight for compared to yeah. any other institutions. The, the, you know, once I was working for some uh, organization and they were they were uh, looking at affirmative action stuff and like they you know they had me just like look at something and I remember like reading some plain statute of you know Supreme Court case where it just plainly says you know you cannot just have a. Um, 
a carve out for one race, say a scholarship at some university. And basically I was like, oh, look, why don't you just go, you know, sue for that? And I feel like the, the kind of people looking for racism against blacks, looking for uh, racist, uh, sexism against women, and the kind of, the, the number of like, uh, you know, competent lawyers who want to sue because of anti-white male discrimination, I think there's orders of magnitude difference. I, I don't think there's, I don't think that's anywhere close. Yeah. So, so, so I think you are right that the left is better at finding test cases, right? The the success of same sex marriage. I, I just want to total up like everyone who works for ACLU, everyone who works up for the NAACP. I think that's, uh, I think that, uh, right, the the, the, yeah. uh, the NAACP Legal Defense Fund has been extremely successful. I think the right is figuring out how, as much as the left is copying certain legal infrastructure from the right slowly but steadily, the, the right is figuring out how to do this. The most, the sort of early successful example of this is Heller v. District, right? Is the, is the two cases. Right. Um, and, and what's, Crazy about Hillary District is that the right reads right out of the left. Explain, explain. Our, our audience are not full of scholars. Yeah, sorry. Um, so, so there are there are two major cases in which uh, legal activists, conservative legal activists, find ways for the Supreme Court to establish the right to keep and bear arms as not just a right that pertains to militia, but an individual right. There's um, the federal case Hillary District, and then McDonald v. Chicago, which incorporates the right against the state. Um, the clever thing about Hillary District is that the guys who ran the case, they found this, like, ideal lineup of, like, the best possible plaintiffs. The, the name plaintiff Heller is, if I remember this correctly, a gay resident of D.C. who used his gun to defend himself against being assaulted by bigots. Like, you right. can't pick a better defendant than that. White the bigots? same thing was... Uh, I think so. Yes. Okay, um, perfect. You needed that. Uh, the, the same thing is true in all the cake baking cases. I don't know why they keep going after this like poor innocent cake baker, but they do it. He's a great victim. Right. That's the um, left. The that's the left choose. That's the left choosing. I mean, the right. I, I, right. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I, you know who who the money gets followed. My, my point. Is, I, I I think we're getting. I think you're right that historically the left is better at this. I think we're getting yeah. better at it. And more importantly, we have much more sympathetic ear. Um, like like. The, the 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 right the, the Harvard case is the work essentially of one guy um, uh, Ed Blum who has been litigating this stuff for decades um, yeah. and I think he's got a real chance of winning because he knows his audience he knows how to win uh, and he's he's put together a compelling story I talked to I talked to somebody the other day this is the last point I'll make that suggestion is you know what what matters is always framing the story in terms of uh, things that people cannot disagree with. The left has been successful in the past five years in saying, how can you not be an anti-racist? Everyone is against racism, so you must be anti-racist if you figure this. Um, and the, you know, the, the the sort of fight against CRT is really the mobilization of uh, pe- people being pro-parents. Who is anti-parent? And if you're pro-parent, then you have to say yeah. that CRT is bad uh, and you have to be on our side in this fight. Um, and I think mm-hmm. that sort of tactical choice, we're getting better at. I think the right is, there, there are lots of ways in which the right has been bad at this historically, but you know that, that, like, basically, those those are the cases that you then figure out. How can you apply pressure to people in races? How do you make it more costly to do this stuff? Yeah, yeah. The Rufo model. I mean, the Rufo model is just so interesting because it's just one guy going on one show, one guy in his Twitter account, and executive or Trump could have done this day one. I mean, he could have done it day one. He could have done if Chris Rufo had focused on affirmative action. So the, the, you know, for the audience that doesn't know, this is all covered in my uh, uh, article on woke institutions. The entire federal, you know, the entire uh, affirmative action regime in the private sector has a legal underpinning of executive orders, which force affirmative action on every single, uh, you know, every single government contractor. And that's pretty much, that's huge. And their subcontractors, which, which is, you know, a huge, above a certain limit of government yeah, contractors. 
and, and I think we should clarify when you say government contractor, people think Lockheed and that's it. No, it, yeah, right. it's the whole economy. Yeah, everybody exactly. sells something. I think, I think, I think it's $50,000. You have to do $50,000 in business. So, no matter if you're you know, a $10 billion company and you do you know, $50,000 in business, right? Um, and, and, and by the way, yeah, and then you also have, you know, the, the way affirmative action is interpreted um, for the federal government and, you know, putting aside, putting aside like the EEOC and the uh, Department of Education and, you know, all those other things that the federal, uh, the uh, executive branch, the top of the executive branch controls, right? Just executive order, right? The entire affirmative action regime is executive order, literally the easiest thing in politics to change. It's just that originally. I mean, some of that is now statutory well, law with the Civil Rights Act of 1991. But much of it is not. Yeah, um, much of the, it is not. Right. When, when, even when you talk about making things easier, from a, from a political perspective, it can be hard to sort of undo a lot of this executive order work. But you can uh, clarify or otherwise reduce reporting burdens. Um, you can you can uh, set policy at the level of the EEOC and the Office of Contract Compliance Programs. You can make it so that the in, insofar as conservatives can control arms of government, you can make it so that firms like Coinbase, uh, firms that do not want to go along to get along, do not have to worry about uh, uh, about coercive isomorphism. You don't have to worry about regulatory pressure. You can say, you know, we are open for this kind of business. Um, yeah. That's the other half of the equation. Is you say, like, you know, you, you can't necessarily pick winners. Just, you know, good if you could, but it's, it's hard. But you can say we're going to make it hard for the people who don't like to thrive and it's easy for people who do like to thrive. Yeah. Within the bounds of pre-existing law. Yeah. I mean, one thing people still say to me, it's like, okay, you think uh, it's all based on civil rights act. So getting rid of the civil rights act is hard. It's like, uh, yeah, but like, you know, there's not a lot of mass passion for, uh, you know, the reporting requirements for corporations and how they count people but by race. Right. So I think this stuff but is a lot. We've had the reporting requirements for federal contractors since I think it's 1967. And right. you so know, there's you, a big, you can still, I, I don't know. There's a big difference between that. And um, the thing that's really kind of, exploded post Floyd where you have really aggressive malice, self-criticism style diversity training. There's no executive order that requires that. And as Charles pointed out, there was for a few weeks between uh, Trump giving the order and, uh, you know, being replaced by Joe Biden. uh, There was an executive order banning that, but um, you know, that's something that's spread by another process. And it it seems, and I think where you're right, uh, you, Richard, is that it's spread because civil rights law is incredibly vague. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the basic way it works is it says if you have a, uh, you know, a disparity, there's kind of a presumption of guilt there. And then we'll see what the evidence is. And so companies want to create the legitimacy of saying, here's all these efforts to show that even though we have this disparity, um, there's no malice. And so they go to all these great lengths to do it. So that require changing not just an executive order which is relatively easy and like you said you can go like ping pong every time a new administration comes in but something much more about changing the the case law and the actual statutory law yeah be hard but 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 doable with the current composition of the courts and you know i think the the small things matter too let me give an example from a conversation why haven't the courts started started yet so the the you know they seem to chicken out they seem to punt every time so i remember when it was i think uh when they, uh, well, after even after Grutter, it was it was the, the next you know after um, Kennedy. I mean, all the people who, who replaced Kennedy, it was um, Gorsuch. Uh, are you talking about? Are you talking about Bostock? Well, uh, well, forget Bostock for a second. But every time they get a new Supreme Court, just I do the calculations based on who's voted against affirmative action in the past, 
And at some point I said, okay, we've got five. And that, I think that was, that was, you know, I think that was, um, yeah, well, that, that was, that was even before that, that was when Kennedy, Kennedy had used to vote against affirmative action. So they had five, we had five for a decade that at some point when they were in the minority voted against affirmative action. Right. And so we've had five to 10 years now um, of people who've on the record at one point or another being against affirmative action. And they've never they've never tossed the thing out or they've never really cut back on it at all. What, what, what is what is going on here? Because it seems different from guns where the conservative movement has had success. And it seems different from the abortion stuff where it seems like they are moving in the direction of chipping away at Roe v. Wade. Why is but, but there's I, I would say there's been no no movement in the last five, 10 years as the courts have gotten more conservative on the on the civil rights stuff. And, you know, just why is that? Um, I'm not convinced there's been no movement. Uh, one exa- so, so, so the one that, you know, uh, people on the left will gnash the teeth and wail about is Shelby County, which pertains not to okay, the yeah, rights state, but, to, but to, the, right. to the Voting Rights Act. Um, but right, it's a good example of like, uh, of, of, of the court seeking to rebut or the, 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 busing, the busing case in Seattle, right? They got rid of it. I was just read the other day. They're still doing busing in Minneapolis. Like, I don't know why, but like, apparently it never goes away. But I remember there was a kick, uh, decision written by Roberts that, uh, based in Seattle that said no more school busing, but they, they still do. Yeah, it I mean, I am, I am more optimistic about Harvard than some of my friends who are better pessimists about the court, um, who, you know, like to joke that we have two, maybe three conservatives on the Supreme Court right now. Uh, I'm more of an optimist than that. Um, I think I could be proved wrong. Uh, it's it's hard to know, but I think that right. So 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 Gabriel was talking about Grutter, um, the the 2003 case um, in which everyone thought that the sort of nominally conservative court was going to finally dump affirmative action. So no, yeah, for, just for our listeners, rather. this was an affirmative action case too against University of Michigan, and they basically upheld affirmative action. And, and Sandra Day O'Connor said, "Oh, in 25 years, we probably won't need it." And you know, well, but seven, it was worse than that because I, I mean, I I increasingly think that Grutter was a strategic mistake in practical terms and that, um, you know, prior to um, the Ward Connolly ballot initiatives, a lot of states, uh, the way that affirmative action college admissions often worked is that you would basically just say, you you get an extra, you get the equivalent of an extra 100 SAT points. You know, it was was just like a strict mathematical thing. You could write an Excel function more or less. So like the way it literally worked in the University of California is half the class half the freshman class, excuse me, was admitted on a weighted average of GPA and SAT. Mm. And then the other half was holistic admissions. And then a few years after uh, 209 and the Regents decision that preceded 209, the um, the University of California said, oh, this sucks. Let's get around this by just going 100% holistic What's admissions. Well, what are you talking about? What's that number? 209 was the first Ward Connolly ballot initiative. It banned affirmative action in the state of California. Um, and then he took it that is kind of a roadshow and got it passed in like half a dozen other states that had uh, a ballot initiative process. So from 1996 to roughly 1999, um, Ward Connolly, who was a conservative activist in California and a member of the UC Board of Regents, he got uh, affirmative action bans in public contracting and public uh, university admissions banned in like half a dozen states. Uh, I think they were Washington, California, Michigan. I forget the others. Anyway, uh, so in response, the state university system said, like, well, let's go to 100% holistic admissions. And that's what was litigated in the Grutter decision. And the Grutter decision affirmed that. And I honestly think, like, we were better off. So the Grutter decision said you can't do the explicit thing, which is the point system, but it said you can do holistic emissions. This was the problem. Exactly. Exactly. And I, and I think it's more socially destructive to have an essay contest on racism 
than just quietly giving people an extra hundred points. Right. And so this is, yeah, this is the funny thing because this is the common thing where you, the, the sort of the compromise at the court has always been, you can't do straight up quotas, right? Um, but you can use race and that's the worst of all worlds, because if you did quotas, you could have, you could have, you could have an IQ test and just have quotas and just have the, you know, the best people. Yeah. And we wouldn't have, and we wouldn't have had this radical transfer. I mean, so like, uh, Ramey and Ramey's the rug rat race, um, says that the transformations in middle-class parenting where we've made middle-class parenting incredibly time-consuming ultimately shift to the, uh, trace to the shift towards college admissions. And, oh, uh, the more destructive than I could have imagined. Does it yeah, exactly. That, like all these, you know, the, like, you know, it, it's not enough to like, your kid goes to high school, they come home, they do their homework, and then you watch TV. It's, you got to drive them around to this lesson and that lesson and this game and this, you know, practice, like, that's uh, that's kind of an upper class habitus that was originally developed by the Ivy League to keep out Jews in the twenties, and then that yeah. spread to state university systems around nineteen ninety eight um, yeah. as part of the shift to um, holistic admissions as a backlash to the Connerly ballot yeah. initiatives. And I, I think it's a it's not a fun way to raise children, right? I mean, to have this right. It's it's it's, it's right? expensive signaling when we used to have a cheaper signal, which is which is bad for everybody. So, what is preventing a yeah. conservative state government from passing a law saying all university admissions will just be a, a standardized exam? Well, I, but I, I will tell you. So, in California, um, with COVID, we you know, the University of California recently banned the SAT, and that kind of came out of a temporary, it's one of these many, like, here's something temporary for COVID, and then it becomes permanent. And we wanted it, during COVID, we wanted it to be optional. And a judge said, you can't make it optional because this has disparate impact on people who, for whatever reason, can't safely take the SAT or whatever. Um, and then the, I believe it was the Regents banned it against the faculty. If it was up to a vote of the Faculty Senate, the Faculty Senate would have voted to keep it. And the Faculty Senate wrote a report saying eh, the SAT is pretty good or maybe we should develop a new test. But, you know, basically the faculty on net were in favor of some kind of testing, maybe even the SAT itself. But uh, the Regents, and I think it's fair to say under certain legal pressure uh, because of disparate impact concerns, got rid of it. I mean, and I think... You know, California is a left-wing state. You know, we we have a, a Democratic governor who appoints a Democratic Board of Regents to the state university system, but the legal environment isn't that different for conservative states. I mean, we're in the Ninth Circuit, but aside from that, you know, it's not clear to me that the legal environment is that different for, say, the state of Texas. So you think the state of if the state of Texas got rid of us and made everything? I mean, we're just fantasizing here because no conservative government is close to doing anything like this. But if the state of Texas went and then said, uh, you know, we're they're, they're going to be open to a disparate impact if they go and they say we're only going to do everything based on uh, standardized tests, but they're in the they're in the the Fifth Circuit, right? And that's I think a conservative circuit, and it would you would it would probably get upheld. It goes. To I, 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 I think the. The Biden Department of Education would go after them, and I think they'd probably lose. I think that absolutely the state Texas of Texas would lose, or Biden would lose. Biden would lose. Yeah, I, I think, think that's uh, right. The, the it's just, it's I don't think there's. I don't yeah. think there's a reason not to do it. Yeah, yeah. I think it would yeah. be broadly popular with this voters. Is political, uh, this, is a, this is a political failure. Now, what what actually <laughs> happened in Texas when uh, affirmative action was banned? I forget if it was a court case or you know legislature or whatever, but one way or another, explicit race norming 
here's an extra 100 SAT point style affirmative action was banned in Texas in the 1990s. And they switched to the high school plan right. where they said, we're going to take the top 10% of each high school and let them into UT. Well, here's the, I mean, here, well, here's the difficulty. I mean, here, I guess, is the difficulty, right? Because you would end up, the demographics of UT Austin would be whiter Asia, white and Asian in a state that were probably plurality or majority of um of uh, of young people are Hispanic or, or black, and so they would you'd have to deal with that reality, right? And you can't. And if yeah. you wanted to get around it by um, quotas, you can't do that either, right? So what are you stuck with? You're stuck with stupid stuff like the you know ten percent. Basically, the only thing that's legal is grutter. Like the basically, the only thing, thing that's legal is like this. Uh, you know, a, you you can't say yeah. we're going to have. You can wink at it. Yeah, exactly. You can't say, I don't know what the demographics of Texas are, but let's say that Texas, young people in Texas are 50% Latino and 20% black, 30% Anglo or whatever. You can't say we're going to have those and then within that, it's just going to be SAT. Like that wouldn't yeah, be allowed. Right, exactly. And, and, and you can't just and, 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 just SAT. But if you, you, you and, and you also couldn't just do SAT. I think pretty much it's, it's like whatever is uh, forbidden, whatever's not forbidden is mandatory, right? I mean, in, in effect, uh, Grutter is more or less required because everything else. No, Grutter, be, Grutter doesn't. Is Grutter says you, it's a race or not. Or Grutter says you can do this. Grutter says you can, if you want to consider. No, that's what I'm saying. I'm saying Grutter, the kind of Grutter standard of holistic admissions is more or less mandatory. Like it'd be very difficult to do yeah. anything. If, a Supreme, if, if we agree with the premise that a conservative Supreme Court, this composition of the Supreme Court would say they would say the quota thing is probably illegal, that they would also say the not shrugging your shoulders and saying, so what, we're just, you know, whatever, the demographics are what they are. We're assuming that they won't uphold that. Now, you can't I, imagine I, Robert saying that. Uh, we don't even need him. I mean, you, okay, yeah. I mean, we're, we're yeah, this is this is the crazy thing about our system. I think, you, guessing, I think you can like count to five people. on that. What's that? I think you can count to five on that. I think that they would. I, yeah. Yeah, and it's I, easier. I mean, the thing is the politics affects the legal. So it's easy. If, if you have a state legislator doing something, right, and then asking the court to uphold it, it's just much easier politically and, and legally, too, than them, you know, creating a new system. Like you're saying, you know, California, you have to do this, right? It, it's just very, uh, it's just different. But yeah, I'm, I'm fascinated. And what I think is, you know, and I think I just contrast this civil rights stuff and affirmative action just with, the you know when they when they uh, you know just with other things that conservatives ca- uh, care about um, so like yeah like abortion like guns like uh, uh, you know there's like these standard laws that they pass when they do get into power and there's just nothing like that on wokeness and I don't think it's the political the political difficulty is that hard I don't think this is hard to sell to a base or a red state constituency by by any means I think you know you could take the hit from the media if you can do the abortion stuff you can, you can you can take the hit on getting rid of affirmative action at the state level or whatever um, it's just the it's just the political will the activism and the you know sort of the expectation that politicians will do this stuff it doesn't have I, to, I, it's not there I think it's also a certain amount of sticking it. So you alluded to, um, to Chris Rufo, my colleague, who's my colleague at the Manhattan Institute, actually. Um, and, you know, I think a lot of what Chris did was, you know, uh, Chris did what all successful policy entrepreneurs do, which is that they identify something that's in the water, something that, you know, everyone sort of vaguely knows and, uh, is going on, but nobody really talks about and dramatically raised its salience. He was like, oh, hang on. Uh, there's this crazy stuff that's happening at all of our schools. We need to wake and pay attention. Once people could coordinate around that, you see an immediate and dramatic shift on the part of uh, politicians who recognize that there's a constituency here. You know, there's there's always this problem of like there's always this problem of like uh, concentrated benefits, diffuse costs, um, concentrated constituencies, diffuse disinterest. As, as I said earlier, Americans consistently in polls they hate quotas. They're against 
race-conscious policy, but they're not against it enough to actually do anything about it. If you raise the salience of the issue, if you say, this is what we're going to vote on, this is what parents are mad about, then if you build a constituency around it, as uh, as I think Chris has worked to do, as I think was successful on the margins in the Virginia gubernatorial race, as I think will be hugely beneficial for the GOP in 2022, um, I think you can activate that. You know, the, the, you alluded to guns and, and abortion. Those are the two areas where there are success, there's successful activation, where there's a, where there's a trans constituency. But like making trans constituency is not just about will. It's mostly about policy salience. It's mostly about convincing people that this is an issue. And then like stuff happens. Yeah, I, I agree. Yeah. And I, just think, well, I, I don't know. I, I think the politics are more complicated than we're letting on because in principle, like you do a poll and you say like, you know, do you think that, uh, you know, rake should be a thumb on the scale or, you know, hardly a factor at all or whatever, right? Those types of questions people would say, you know, people tend to go somewhere between thumb on the scale and um, not a factor at all. But most people would probably disagree with something like, I think it should be the equivalent of 200 SAT points, which is more or less what the Harvard lawsuit and uh, Tom Espenshade's work have shown. But on the other hand, if you were to say to people, what if there was a policy change that would take the University of Texas uh, freshman class and move it from 5% black and 30% Hispanic to yeah. 1% black and 8% Hispanic? Mm. I think people would be horrified by that. Like, I, I don't think that that would be politically sustainable, even if in principle people, and I'm not, I'm honestly not even sure if people would be wrong to be horrified by that. Like, is that socially sustainable to have, um, you know, huge disparities in the composition of the the elite. I, I think you can have that debate. I think it depends on how you frame it, but that's yeah. not the debate that we have right now. Like, if 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 uh, if if the political left was defending explicit quotas, that would be on on the grounds referred to on on grounds of social comedy. I think that is a at least a more honest position than the status quo, which has been precipitated by cases like Rudder. Uh, where we sort of have these like vague notions of diversity being good for no, sort of sake. It goes all the way back to Backy. Right? It goes I mean, all the way back to Backy. Uh, that, that, that that would at least be a preferable political status quo, having a fight about that as opposed to the fight that we're currently allegedly yeah. having. Yeah, my, my view is, I mean, on what Gabe says, is I, I think polarization is such a strong thing that a lot is actually sustainable at a state level. I think that, the you know, there's sort of this dynamic where whatever you do in Texas, the you know, the, the more Cal, uh, California hollers about it, you know, that the easier sort of it becomes ma- to maintain politically and vice versa. You know, and I, I think that, um, you know, if you look at something like, you know, the you know, the result, the result you, you, you would have to do it first, right? Before you get the demographics, right? So you'd have to rely on, you do it, right? And then people like, you know, they don't know the implications right away. And then there's, you know, 10% Hispanics, uh, whatever, in, in Texas, and then people have to, have to go and then they have to go do the, the policy thing again. And, you know, that's hard because there's a stat, there's a status quo bias. So I think, I think actually a lot of things, you know, especially if a Republican state, where Republicans reliably win, win elections. So, I, you know, I think there's a status quo bias. I think there's negative polarization. I think there's a lot of, that's working that that's, you know, in a way expands sort of the scope um, of what is possible. Um, like the, um, you know, the Voting Rights Act, I think, is a fascinating case because this was something that used to get passed, I think, unanimously in, in Congress. And, you know, when the if, if the Supreme Court had gutted it, 
30 years ago, I think the I think Congress would have basically just over overrode them and then just basically done something. And that didn't happen now because it's become a partisan issue. I think there's, uh, you know, I think conservatives are, you know, when Reagan uh, was thinking about getting rid of the executive order on affirmative action, there was a bipartisan backlash that would not happen today. Right. There's no way Trump wanted to get rid of affirmative action. Half the Republican, even the list Cheney's and, the you know, uh, you know, whoever's against Trump, you know, 90 percent of even those people, I think, would be on board. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think I disagree with Gabe. I think I think the you know the, the what's what's polit- I think you're right that you know the you, the implications could be uncomfortable, but the implications are sort of downstream from doing the policy today. And then I think a lot of things are sustainable once it becomes. That would make it much harder to do it in the, in the second state. In the what? Right. So, like, let's say that I don't know why we're going on for 20 minutes about this thought experiment, but you know, or, you know, with the utopian or dystopian. Well, it's interesting. People who care about wokeness do care about sort of the political prospects. Yeah. Of well, although I think. I don't know. I think wokeness is qualitatively distinct from like, I think it's possible to have a non woke uh, affirmative action system. Sure. You know, you know, I, I mean, the, the extreme case would be something like uh, Malaysia where the, the ethnic Malay minority says it's not fair to expect us to compete with these brilliant Chinese, no. you know, so we yeah, need Malay, the, the, the majority. You said Malay minority. The majority. Yeah, yeah. I'm sorry. The, the, excuse me. The, the Malay majority says it's not, uh, fair to expect us to compete with these, you know, uh, brilliant hakas. So we need to have this, you know, uh, affirmative action system for us. So like it, it is, so that's about as unwoke as you could get, uh, Anyway, but so let's I say think, hypothetically. I think, in practice, I think in practice, though, I think what you find is a lot of uh, the demographic composition of institutions does determine their politics. So if you have a lot of uh, minorities and women in, in a, uh, especially if they concentrate in certain departments, you know, that end in studies, you know, I think that I think that there's a pretty obvious downstream effect of that on, on the wider culture of the I, institution. I, I, I think what I'd say in general about sort of conscious quote of policy is that it, 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 it can it can be managed well. When you talk about Southeast Asian examples, Singapore, Malaysia, it can be managed well, uh, also also sort of in the post-Balkan states, but it can also go really badly. Um, I think that the you know the the, the regime the, the the sort of regime ideals of the contemporary progressive left look much more like post-partite South Africa or many of the regimes across Latin America. Um, where there is, I think, much more just sort of struggle between ethnic groups. The American solution historically to the reality of living in a multi-ethnic country has been uh, colorblindness and universal citizenship. Um, and we can say that may not work very well. I think Gabriel's probably right that people would be alarmed when uh, the courts ban affirmative action and the next year 90% of admits deal in Harvard or Asian. Um, that would prompt some result. Uh, but I think that they would be running up against a very powerful American norm, which is like uh, we believe in meritocracy, regardless of uh, race, creed, or color. And, and it would be at least. I mean, have you have you lived? I think I think I, I, I think Americans do believe that. I think the majority of Americans believe that. Yeah, have you seen the, the recent polls on like, abolishing standardized tests, which is I think a slight majority is in favor of. Yeah, but that's because they don't believe the standardized tests. Yeah, yeah. Well, well, then well, that's the because problem. The longer standardized yeah. tests, they like the they like the subjective standard of merit. That everyone should everyone should live up. Yeah, yeah which, which in uh, practice means that your parents paid for lacrosse lessons. Yeah. Um, well, yeah. Well, yeah. this has been. I mean, this has been 
Fascinating. I, you know, I just, I love these conversations because there is, you know, the criticisms of wokeness and concern with wokeness is, you know, the, the, this kind of discussions are a dime a dozen. And there's just, there's just such a market demand, I think, for conversations about actual policy and what's politically plausible and what can be done and, and what should be done. And so I appreciate having you guys on. Gabe, is there anything you want to plug or anything you're working on before we go? Oh, just like nerdy academic stuff that will be three years before it gets through peer review. Okay. And Charles, you, you work on a different schedule, so uh, yeah, I'm 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 I don't know ten years, so I do have to plug myself. Uh, yeah, you know, check out my work at City Journal. Check out we write we do. Th- this is one of our main issue areas at the Manhattan Institute. I mentioned my colleague Chris Rufo, my colleague Heather McDonald. Um, our legal team is very interested in this topic. We're very into this topic, so like check out all of their work. Um, I'm on Twitter. I'm at Charles F Lehman. You can follow me there, uh, and also online in general. Okay, great. Thanks, guys. All right, good talking to you. Thanks. Thanks.